This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is optimism and happiness in life. In the first half, Jeffrey H. Larson shares his address, What Do You Expect? A Key to Personal Happiness. Then in the second half, T. Jeffrey Wilkes speaks on optimism and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'm honored to be before you today in this devotional setting. I never imagined as a BYU student in 1968 that in my future I would ever have something important enough to say that several hundred students would show up to hear me. Unless, of course, they were getting course credit and I was taking role. I appreciate the confidence others have shown in me by asking me to speak to you. Since I always start class with a joke or something humorous, I will do the same today to get you in a better mood and to help me relax. Plus, it is awfully quiet in here. I was recently searching the WAN ads in the newspaper and found some interesting ones. As an editor, I generally read things carefully. Evidently, some people do not edit their ads before they publish them. Here's some that I found. You might like these. This one says, Illiterate? Write today for free help. I like this one. Dog for sale. Eats anything and is fond of children. Where'd the kids go? This was unintended. This was unintended. But it says, for sale, antique desk suitable for a lady with thick legs and large drawers. It's the table. It's the desk. It's... Free puppies, half cocker spaniel, half sneaky neighbor's dog. This is tragic, but it says, nice parachute, never opened, used once. Uh, Now to more serious matters. When I was a young boy, 13 years old, I was about to enter junior high school in Grand Junction, Colorado. I'm the oldest of five boys and thus felt some pressure to accomplish great things and be a good example for my four younger brothers. I expected that junior high would be difficult. I wouldn't know all the kids since in junior high we came from different elementary schools. The thought of going from classroom to classroom made me wonder if I would get lost and look like a fool. I wondered, what if some of the teachers are mean? And I was most worried about how skinny I was at the time and my new crop of pimples. When you think about it, how does anyone survive junior high school? Most of all, I worried that I may not compete well academically with the other students, as being a scholar was my goal. So I was a bundle of nerves that summer of 1962. Fortunately, I was blessed with a great mom who always seemed to be able to calm me down. This is her and I making homemade fudge together in 1953. The Salt Lake Tribune took the picture and published my mom's great no-cook fudge recipe. This is where I got my sweet tooth, by the way. Finally, my mom calmed me down with one of the wisest, most caring, and rational statements a mom could make to her worrywart son. She said, Jeff, we don't care what your grades are. All we expect is that you do your best. If you do your best, we will be proud of you regardless of your grades. 
With that statement, my anxiety was cut in half, and I started looking forward to junior high school. After all, I could not control my final GPA, but I could control how hard I tried. I couldn't control my intelligence, which was average. Okay, maybe a little bit above average. How mean the teachers would be, how smart the other students would be, or even my final grade in any particular class. But control my levels of dedication and effort, I could do that. My mom taught me the value of setting realistic expectations in life that day. She taught me that process or effort is more important and manageable than the final outcome. Process is everything, as we say in family therapy. So for over half a century of living, I've used her wise counsel in my life to accomplish much, get over my failures, keep perspective in all that I do, and not beat myself up when I don't succeed the first time. Thus, my topic today is, what do you expect? A key to personal happiness. My question for you today is, what do you expect of yourself and life? And how are your expectations influencing how happy you are day to day? Expectations are thoughts or beliefs we have about ourselves, our relationships, and what happens to us in life. They are crucial as they are standards or yardsticks by which we judge what happens to us and how satisfied or unsatisfied we are with ourselves and life. I want to focus on two kinds of expectations today. What we expect of ourselves and what we expect of our relationships. I want to start with two kinds of thoughts or expectations we sometimes have of ourselves and life that get us into trouble. They can lead to depression, anxiety, and a sense of failure. Avoiding these expectations or thoughts we carry around in our heads can change our way of looking at the world and ultimately how we feel emotionally. They directly affect whether or not we are happy. The two popular thinking errors we humans seem destined to make and which can cause us much misery in life were first scientifically identified by world-renowned psychologists Aaron Beck and David Burns, both cognitive behavioral psychotherapists. They discovered ten thinking errors or cognitive distortions that cause us emotional pain. They are at the root of depression, anxiety, and poor self-esteem. I will focus on two especially common ones and the related problem of perfectionism. They are, one, all-or-nothing thinking, and two, overgeneralization. Theory and research over the last 50 years shows that emotions or feelings are based not on the event or the world we perceive, but rather how we interpret events and the world. This is referred to as the cognitive therapy approach in psychology. Burns' important book is called Feeling Good, the New Mood Therapy it is from that source that I will quote. First, I refer to this figure that shows the theory in a simplified manner. Quote, this shows the relationship between the world and the way you feel. First, the world consists of a series of positive, neutral, and negative events. Second, you interpret the events with a series of thoughts that continually flow through your mind. This is called your internal dialogue or self-talk. Your feelings are created by your thoughts and not by the actual events. All experiences must be processed through the brain and given a conscious meaning before you experience any emotional response. 
This model emphasizes that we don't usually simply just feel an emotion spontaneously, but rather we create our feelings from our thought processes. Depending on our thoughts, we can experience certain feelings. This model has been widely supported by empirical research in the field of psychology, and the Burns approach is generally recognized as one of the most potent treatments in all of psychotherapy for treatment of a wide variety of emotional disorders. Now, lest you think, or shall we say expect, that problems like depression and anxiety are uncommon, it is predicted that more than one in four of you will have one of these problems sometime in your life. Or you may know someone with these problems, and you may be in a position to help. Scriptural support for Beck and Burns' theory can be found in the following. Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. President Ezra Taft Benson emphasized, quote, Daily, constantly, we choose by our desires, our thoughts, and our actions whether we want to be blessed or cursed, happy or miserable. Norman Vincent Peale exclaimed, Change your thoughts and change the world. Now let me demonstrate how these cognitive distortions or unrealistic expectations of ourselves in life can harm our mental and relationship health. First, let's look at the problem of all-or-nothing thinking. This is also called black-and-white thinking. We do this when we think of life's events and people in extreme categories, black or white, righteous or unrighteous, good or bad. You may think, since I flunked that quiz, that means I'm a failure. Or, since she turned me down for a date, that proves I'm a loser. This is also referred to as catastrophizing. I love that term. Catastrophizing. These cognitions or thoughts will cause you to be depressed. But if instead, after you got off the phone, you said to yourself, wow, too bad for her. She missed a chance to go out with the best-looking guy in Provo. That's her loss, not mine. Let's get another phone call going. Okay, you would then feel less depressed. Of course, you may also be exaggerating your own personal qualities a bit. The fact is, most of what happens to us cannot be thought of in black-and-white terms or all-or-nothing terms. No one is absolutely brilliant or totally stupid. People are not absolutely righteous or unrighteous. We are all just more or less so. Fact is, much of life is gray, not black and white. Related to all or nothing thinking is the cognitive habit of overgeneralization. This happens when you arbitrarily conclude that something that happened to you once will occur over and over again. This is analogous to dropping a drop of black ink into a container of water, clear water. Soon the whole container turns gray or black. It is exemplified in the earlier example of the young man who, after being turned down for a prospective date, decided he was the world's biggest loser. We use all-or-nothing thinking and overgeneralization in the service of another toxic habit called perfectionism. Perfectionism is defined as the obsessive and rigid desire or expectation that we must do things perfectly or life is not good. Sometimes we apply it to even trivial things like mopping a floor or straightening up our desk. By the way, a clean desk is the sign of a sick mind. 
I have several colleagues who can vouch for that. If something is not done just right, perfectly, we consider ourselves a failure. It is directly related to all or nothing thinking. Either I'm a success or a failure. Either I'm perfect or imperfect. And I cannot stand not to be perfect. Average is not for me. Perfectionism or having unrealistic or irrational expectations about ourselves or our relationships is a chief cause of depression, anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive disorders, as well as relationship problems. Perfectionism leads to procrastination, which leads eventually to paralysis. We call these the three Ps. A college student who was a client of mine several years ago related this story about his perfectionism. Quote, I set so high standards for projects I did that when I thought about even starting a project, I would feel anxious and nauseous. That would lead to me procrastinating beginning the project, even doing one section of it. Eventually, it led to me feeling paralyzed. I remember staring at the instructions from the professor, getting anxious, then waiting till the last minute to quickly do the project, and at the last minute, turn it in the next day. My perfectionism led to me getting less than perfect grades on projects. When I asked this young man to make a list of advantages and disadvantages of his perfectionism, he came up with four advantages. For example, he thought he did a better job when he was perfectionistic, although his grades did not show it. Then he listed 17 disadvantages to perfectionism. Some of them just discussed. At this time, he started reconsidering the value of perfectionism in his life. Even God does not expect us to be perfect in this life. It simply cannot be done. Norma Ashton, speaking to the BYU women, said, quote, Know that you don't have to be perfect. We aren't even expected to achieve perfection in this life, but rather to make steady progress toward it. We are masochists sometimes, and I think we allow ourselves to succumb to the failed diet syndrome. You overeat one time and think, that's it, I've blown it. No reason to stay on the diet now. When we fall short of the mark, we feel we've blown it. Uh, we'll never be able to measure up to everything we've been told to do. So in effect, we give up. This thought pattern is very clever and a successful tool of the adversary. We must keep trying, but we must be able to forgive ourselves when we can't do it all. We can make do with our present and look forward. This suggests a more rational and productive way to think about life. Just do your best. Like my mom said, I like these quotes from other wise people. Quote, happy people do their part, do their best, then let go and let God do the rest. They do what they can within their circle of influence. Or from Alcoholics Anonymous, quote, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. This prayer has been successfully used in Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 70 years. These ideas suggest that process is more important than outcome. Burns suggests developing a process orientation to life. Quote, this means you focus on processes rather than outcomes as a basis for evaluating things.
This more rational way of thinking emphasizes that the journey is the destination. I love that. The journey is the destination. And don't audit life. Show up and make the most of it now. Let's apply this process idea to a common problem today, looking for a job. Some of you may be doing that, or will soon. When you're applying for work, do not make it your aim to get the perfect job. Instead, make it your aim to do your best to develop a great resume, contact employers, and interview well. Most people who get a decent job do so after first receiving an average of 10 to 15 rejections. Now, does that make sense? Is that what happened to you? That's what happened to me. 10 to 15 rejections. This is because the outcome of job hunting depends on many more factors than just you. The outcome depends on many factors outside your control. For example, how many other applicants there are, their qualifications, who knows the boss's daughter, etc. So instead, focus on what you can control, and that's your effort. If you make a great effort each day, you should feel proud and satisfied. You will feel less depressed and discouraged than if you expect that landing a great job is success. And you will eventually land a job, maybe even a great job. What should we do when we make mistakes? What should our expectations be then? Burns emphasizes, quote, it is good to make mistakes because then we learn. In fact, we won't learn unless we make mistakes. No one can avoid making mistakes. And since it's going to happen in any case, we may as well accept it and learn from it, unquote. He also said, we don't die if we make mistakes, unless you're skydiving. Focus instead on what you can learn from your mistakes. An example of this for me happened when I was in the U.S. Coast Guard, being trained as an officer and a gentleman at Officer Candidate School in August 1974. The platoon leaders lined us up each day at 6 a.m. to inspect our uniforms for any dirt, wrinkles in our shirts, unshined shoes, and even lint on our black uniforms. And white lint really showed up on those black uniforms. I got gigged or punished every time they found anything out of order, even something very minor. When you were gigged, you lost points on a chart, and if you lost enough points, they kicked you out of the program. During the first two weeks, I lost 20 points and was getting really discouraged. Then it occurred to me, instead of beating myself up over my mistakes, use them as learning experiences. After that, each time I got gigged, I wrote down a note to myself of what not to do next time. Eventually, I was passing inspection every week, not losing any points. Looking back, the platoon leaders were purposely finding any little mistake to nail us for just to see how we would react. There was no such thing as a perfect uniform after all. If we catastrophized and got angry or discouraged when we got gigged, their conclusion was that certainly we would not be able to handle stress well enough at sea to be leaders in the U.S. Coast Guard. And they were right. In reality, the secret of happiness is to set modest or realistic goals and accomplish them. 
Climbing mountains is important, but each of us has our own mountain to climb. And we decide what is a successful climb. Good example of using this principle occurred in my own life about a year ago in September 2008. My oldest son, Jeffrey, his wife, Chirsten, and their son, Cameron, invited me to take a hike to the top of Mount Timpanogos. Beautiful place. Since coming to BYU 22 years ago, I always wanted to do that. Every time I looked up at that most beautiful mountain north of our campus, I thought, I've got to climb to the top of that someday. Many of you have. I agreed to go, but then I discovered the hike was almost 12 miles round trip. And of course, the first six miles were all uphill. And this was in the heat of the summer. Now, I was close to 60 years old at the time, and I wasn't in very good shape. But I figured if I took it easy, drank a lot of water, I could make it. And Jeff and Cherston were experienced backpackers, so I felt safe with them. Plus, my son Dylan agreed to take my 40-pound backpack most of the way up the trail for me. What a thoughtful son. I wouldn't have made it had he not done that. Well, we hiked for a whole day, and by the time we arrived about one mile from the summit we pitched camp, I found myself exhausted. I'd been stopping for a breath about every 75 yards for the last hour. I saw the top of that beautiful mountain, and I thanked God that I was there. But I also realized that I did not have the physical stamina to go to the very top the next day, plus hike down six miles with a full backpack, most likely in the middle of a rainstorm, which was forecasted for the next day. And actually, the next day, it snowed on us. That was September 1st. At that moment, I changed my expectations. I wisely decided I have climbed my mountain. I have seen the top. I have survived a hike I was not sure I would survive. I was joyous, but I had to fight off the normal protest from my son that I was only one mile from the summit, and I may someday regret not going to the very top. I told him, that's okay, you guys summit tomorrow. I have climbed my mountain. Now some of you may think I wimped out by changing my expectations in the middle of that hike. That's understandable. However, had I gone on, I may not be here today making this speech. Little did I know at that time that the breathing problem I was suffering was due to two clogged arteries in my heart, which were 95% closed, which was not diagnosed and treated until just two months ago. Had I continued to the top of Timp that day, I might still be there, buried with a really good view. It was funny, my cardiologist, who did not know this story, told me after surgery in May, you can pretty much exercise the way you were before, but don't go climbing Timp this weekend. <laughs> Didn't need to say that. But how does God feel about our lack of perfection? I like this quote a lot. Quote, God loves you because of who God is, not because of anything you did or didn't do. I've never heard it put that way. I really like that. What about the times when our expectations, even realistic ones, are not met? How do we best respond? 
The fountain of all knowledge, my mom would say, count your blessings, it could be worse. Perhaps she got this counsel from a song I love. Let's look at the first verse of this song. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost. All is lost! Oh, I didn't make it to the top of Tim. I didn't get an A on my quiz. All is lost. It's the end of the world as we know it. Oh, back to the song. Isn't it interesting the person who wrote that song said, All is lost. We think all is lost. That is overgeneralization combined with catastrophizing. You learned that today. Excellent. It was worth coming. Help! All is lost. Back to the song. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. This is a strategy I try to use when trouble or discouragement shows up in my life. The message here is, take perspective with all your problems. If we compare our blessings to our misfortunes, my guess is most of us would have many of the former and fewer of the latter. It has been said, quote, happy people count their blessings while the miserable complain about theirs. Unquote. That's like complaining that you missed a call on your miniature computer attached to your ear, which is connected to a multi-million dollar satellite circling the earth hundreds of miles away, thanks to the work of many talented scientists. This device is also referred to as your cell phone. It will even take pictures you can instantly send to your mother. What would the pioneers say if they heard this? What would the pioneers say? By the way, how many of you are texting right now? It's those saints with their heads down, not in prayer, but in texting. Well, as President Monson said, everyone can be discontented if he ignores his blessings and looks only at his burdens. Perspective is everything. What about unrealistic expectations about relationships? I specialize in relationships, so here's a few. Here are a few that will get you into trouble. They're from my book for singles called Should We Stay Together? For those looking to get married, here are a few. Quote, there is one and only one right person in the world for you to marry. This is, of course, an example of all or nothing thinking. Fortunately, for most of us, there are several people in the world we could be happy with. Otherwise, why would people remarry after the death of a beloved spouse and be just as happy with the second spouse? Hmm. Another irrational belief or expectation is, quote, choosing someone to marry is a decision of the heart. Fact is, if more people use their heads in the mate selection process, the divorce rate might not be nearly so high. Or do you believe this myth? Preparing for marriage just comes naturally. This is called the myth of naturalism. That it's just natural to know what it takes to be happily married. You don't need to take a class. Why spend your tuition money on that? Everyone knows how to be happily married. We simply learn it naturally from our parents and television. This is scary when you consider that half of the parents in the United States, and most on TV, are divorced. 
For the marrieds in the audience, here are a couple marriage myths for you to consider from my second book, The Great Marriage Tune-Up Book. Quote, If my spouse loves me, he or she should instinctively know what I want and need to be happy. This is the ESP, or Extra Sensory Perception Myth, expecting our partner to be able to read our mind. Another myth is, marriage can fulfill all of my needs. No, you still need a close relationship with God, good friends, family members, hobbies, and a good golf or tennis game to be happy, even if you are married. I hope you don't believe the myth that, quote, couples should keep their problems to themselves and solve them alone. Too many couples keep their problems to themselves until it's too late, and the relationship is so dysfunctional that it is nearly impossible to repair, even in therapy. Most couples who divorce say they never went to marriage counseling or they waited too long to go. If they could speak to us now, their message to us would be, reach out for help before it is too late. In conclusion, today I've made a case for carefully considering your expectations and thoughts about life in order to be happier. I want to end my talk with two quotes related to expectations about life from two of my favorite people, President Gordon B. Hinckley and his wife, Sister Marjorie Pay Hinckley. President Hinckley once said, quote, Anyone who imagines that bliss is normal is going to waste a lot of time running around shouting that he's been rubbed. The fact is that most putts don't drop, most beef is tough. Life is like an old-time rail journey. Delays, sidetracks, smoke, dust, cinders, and jolts, interspersed only occasionally by beautiful vistas and thrilling bursts of speed. The trick is to thank the Lord for letting you have the ride. My mom not only made great fudge, but she also had a great sense of humor. Sister Hinckley, like my mom, also had a sense of humor and said this, The only way to get through life is to laugh your way through it. You either have to laugh or cry. I prefer to laugh. Crying gives me a headache. <laughs> is my prayer that this message has not given you a headache, but rather some ideas to consider in improving your own personal happiness. By being more aware and then more realistic in our expectations and thoughts about life and other people, we can become happier than instead expecting life or others to change for us. I testify that my mom was right, and these principles are true, as I have tried to live them all the days of my life and say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is optimism and happiness in life. We've just heard from Jeffrey H. Larson. After the break, we'll return with T. Jeffrey Wilkes for optimism and joy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is optimism and happiness in life. Next is T. Jeffrey Wilkes, a professor in the BYU School of Accountancy at the time of this address, 
entitled Optimism and Joy in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I've imagined for the last two months what this would feel like, and it doesn't begin to compare. I stand before you in amazement and awe at who you are. I can't help but look at you and think of the days that I was here as a student at BYU. In fact, it was 20 years ago this month that I first met my dear sweetheart, Melinda. I'd been home off my mission for about four months, and I was attending my new BYU ward for the very first time. And as I went to the sacrament meeting, I looked up at the the person leading the music, as I should, right? And she was the most beautiful young woman I had ever seen. That evening, I saw her again at ward prayer, but I was way too scared to go up and introduce myself to her. Fortunately, Heavenly Father took care of that little detail by inspiring our bishop to assign us to the same family home evening group. They announced the new groups just that very evening. We flirted for a few months before we finally started dating, and we were married the following June. Every significant blessing that has come into my life since that time I have shared with my best friend and eternal companion. I love every moment we get to spend together, and there are never enough of those moments. While I know many of you are hoping for a similar experience sometime this year, or maybe in the next few years, In fact, the beginning of a new semester or new school year is filled with all kinds of hope and excitement for many different reasons. But sadly, by the time we get to the end of the semester, final projects, final exams, a lot of that hope has just plain vanished. I still remember the nightmare I used to have at the end of each semester in which I dreamed I had forgotten to attend one of my classes for the entire semester. It was horrible. Funny enough, I had the same dream when I became a professor, except I dreamed that I had completely forgotten to teach a class for the entire semester. (laughs) And I just knew I was going to be fired. (laughs) What is it that happens between the beginning and the end of a semester that drains us of our hope and excitement? Why is it so hard sometimes to be positive and upbeat? Well, I don't know all the answers to this, to be sure, but I was accused at a very young age of being too positive too upbeat, and even naive sometimes about life. I can't remember exactly when those accusations began, but when I was 16 years old, an inspired patriarch placed his hands on my head and said the following, Jeffrey, this is a good world. You will be positive in your thinking. You will think positively. You will speak positively. You will act positively. With all the negativism in the world today, you will sort it out, and you will be happy because you will do the things which are pleasant and worthwhile. I have seen this blessing come true countless times in my life, and I can testify that this world is a good world. There is so much to be happy about in this world, and when we fail to see the world, the wonder, the joy, when we refuse to see the hope and the light everywhere around us, we are not seeing the world as it truly is. We are not seeing the world as Heavenly Father sees it. I have to tell you something that happened when I was writing this very thought last Tuesday afternoon. I needed a break, so I stood up from my desk on the fifth floor in the Tanner Building. As I was looking out the window, there's a perfect view of the walkway that goes up from Helam and Halls all the way up to the Tanner Building. I saw a young man in a wheelchair who was wheeling himself up on his own. Just as I started thinking about how tough that would be, I saw another young man just ahead of him on the walkway turn around and notice 
the young man in the wheelchair. I don't know if they knew each other or were complete strangers, but immediately that young man turned around and walked behind the wheelchair and pushed that young man up the rest of the long walkway. In fact, he practically ran up the entire way. It was hard to follow them all the way up that walkway. This simple moment, 1.30 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, witnessed again to me how much light and goodness there are everywhere around us if we'll just take the time to look for it. So today, I want to share with you five lessons that I have learned in my life about being positive in a world that's filled with negativism. Each of these lessons is based on experiences I have had as a husband and a father. Now, I'm fully aware that Elder Stephen E. Snow spoke from this pulpit just two weeks ago about optimism. But as much as I tried to think of a different topic to speak on, I kept coming back to this topic. So I can only trust that Heavenly Father thinks we could use a double dose on this particular topic, and sometimes maybe a bit more. The first lesson about being positive in a negative world is that righteousness does not mean perfection. A humorous experience happened when our family was younger. I say humorous. It wasn't so humorous then, but it is now. Uh, when my oldest daughter, Ashen, was almost 10 years old, we were camping at Palisade State Park down near Manti, Utah. My kids were pretty young then, so they weren't a whole lot of help setting up tents at the time, you know, especially the tent we had. It had those flexible fiberglass poles that you have to shove into the sleeves and then do your best to try to raise up, and it was a pretty big tent. Well, while my wife was unloading her vehicle and setting up the rest of camp, I was struggling to get the tent off the ground by myself. Then suddenly, with one of those pushes on the poles, I snapped the pole. I'm ashamed to admit that at that moment I let slip from my lips a rather colorful word that I dare not repeat here. <laughs> oh, it wasn't a horrible word, but my daughter clearly recognized it to be a swear word. I continued on in my battle to get the tent off the ground and eventually succeeded with some duct tape and I don't remember what else it was that got it up. But unbeknownst to me, at the time, there was a conversation that went on between my wife and my daughter. Melinda later told me that my daughter approached her with a troubled look on her face and said, Mommy, I thought Daddy was perfect. <laughs> my immediate reaction was to feel horribly ashamed that I had crushed that perception that she had. Of course, my second reaction was to think, wow, I managed to get my daughter to almost 10 years old thinking I was perfect. <laughs> but all humor aside, I felt pretty bad for what I'd done. And then came the teaching moment. My dear wife said simply to my daughter, Daddy's not perfect, but he is righteous. It was one of those moments I was profoundly reminded that I had married an angel. Who else could have come up with such a simple teaching in that moment? Perfection can sometimes be the enemy of righteousness. When we get so caught up worrying about being perfect, about being a perfect spouse, a perfect son or a daughter, a perfect parent, a perfect teacher, or perfect friend, it's easy to become discouraged because none of us will ever be perfect in this life. Even though our Savior commanded us to be perfect like Him and our Heavenly Father, He has no expectation that we're going to accomplish that in this life. It's impossible. Remember, he taught Moroni that he gives unto us weaknesses that we can be humble. And if we humble ourselves, his grace is sufficient to make those weaknesses become strengths, but not perfections. The second lesson about being positive in a negative world 
is that life really is hard sometimes, and you've got to keep trying anyway. My son Tanner taught me this one day when he was eight years old. Tanner had decided to switch from skiing to snowboarding that year, and it was his first day on the slopes. Now, those of you who have snowboarded know that the first day is typically horrible and painful. In fact, most instructors say that you can't make a decision about whether you like snowboarding until you've gone at least three times because you still hate it and you're in pain after the first two days. I still haven't tried snowboarding, and I tell my kids I never will unless I get to rent one of those sumo costumes, those big, huge padded costumes you wrestle in. That, with that, maybe I'd do it, but I haven't done it yet. <laughs> well, Tanner's first day on a snowboard proved to be like most first days. Very painful and frustrating. I couldn't show you the video of it, just the picture. Uh, initially, he started down the mountain with his older brother, who knew how to snowboard. But every two or three feet, Tanner would fall down, either catching a toe and landing on his stomach or sliding too much on his heels and landing on his rear end. He was crying and yelling the entire way down the mountain. He got to the point where he didn't even want to stand up again. Instead, he just slid down the mountain on his bum. <laughs> After what seemed like two hours getting down the mountain, he finally arrived, and he was exhausted physically and mentally. He was in pain, and he was very tired. I was tired of dealing with a cranky son, too. Fortunately, we were staying in a lodge close to the base of the resort, so we decided to take a break. I figured Tanner was done for the day, so after a good lunch and sitting around for a bit, I was surprised when Tanner said, I want to go again. I asked him whether he remembered the morning. But he said he wanted to try again anyway. I don't know what happened. But that afternoon, his attitude was completely different. He kept getting up every time he fell. And by the end of the day, he could butter down the hill pretty well. And today, he can carve a line down any hill his older brothers can ride. Well, life sometimes really is hard. And all we can do is get back up. Get back up on that snowboard, even though we know perfectly well how easily that snowboard can slide right out from under us. Some of you know what it's like to struggle with addictions. And getting back up after falling off those particular snowboards can be very frustrating. You may wonder if you will ever be able to overcome that addiction. And when you feel this frustration, the physical and mental anguish from trying and failing and trying again, please remember this wonderful counsel found in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 123. Therefore, dearly beloved brethren, let us cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, and then may we stand still with the utmost assurance to see the salvation of God and for his arm to be revealed. When you're sitting there wondering whether you can stand back up again, remember that sometimes the test is not about overcoming, but about whether we will keep trying no matter how hard things seem to be. Never give up. Do all things cheerfully that lie in your power, and then stand with the assurance that God will help you. The third lesson about being positive in a negative world is to keep your eyes on Heavenly Father. When my youngest daughter, Malia, was nearly two years old, she was playing in the cultural hall of our church in New Canaan, Connecticut. You know those doors that are under the stage where we store all the chairs and the tables? Well, Malia was playing with those doors and accidentally closed both doors at the same time really hard with her thumb between them. She just cried and cried, our sweet little girl. When she finally settled down, we noticed that her thumb seemed to be stuck. And after visiting the emergency room and then a hand specialist a week later, we learned that Malia had what is called congenital trigger thumb, where the tendon that flexes the thumb is stuck in its sheath, holding the thumb in a bent position. 
We waited a few weeks at the doctor's recommendation to see if it might heal itself on its own. But when that didn't happen, we scheduled time for a surgery. Early that morning at the hospital, our little girl, who normally bounces off walls, wrestles with her older brothers, and generally causes havoc wherever she goes, <laughs> was pretty subdued. We dressed her in the cutest yellow hospital clothes they had and found some fluffy red socks to keep her feet warm. Then the nurse took us down to a closet where Malia chose a cute, pillow-soft teddy bear that she could take with her into the surgery prep room. Then I put on some scrubs, and we said goodbye to Melinda, and I carried my sweet little girl down the hall to the prep room with her arms tightly around my neck. I was pretty worried that she might not let go, that she would be scared to go into surgery. But when we arrived in the room, I gave her a big hug and then gently laid her down on the table onto a nice warm blanket. The nurse put another warm blanket over Malia while I talked to her. I kept her calm and placed her little teddy bear under her arms, which she snuggled closely. I looked at her right in the eyes, and she looked at me while I explained that the doctor was going to put a mask over her face and that she was going to fall asleep. While holding my hand and looking into my eyes, she watched the doctor place the mask over her mouth and nose. Shortly after, I whispered to her that I loved her, and I watched her little lips inside the mask speak the words, I love you too. Then her little lips started to quiver, and she closed her eyes to sleep. My sweet little girl, who bounces off of walls, had calmly gone into surgery, listening to my voice and looking into my eyes deeply. It was one of the most sacred experiences of my entire life. From this and many other experiences as a father and as a bishop, I have learned how deeply Heavenly Father loves each one of us. He is always this nearby when we're going through tough times. But it's up to us whether we will look into His eyes and listen to His voice. We look into His eyes and we listen to His voice when we immerse ourselves in the Scriptures and we converse with Him in meaningful daily prayer. I testify to you that by keeping your focus on Him and listening to His voice, we will see the goodness and wonder that surrounds us even in the most difficult circumstances. The fourth lesson about being positive in a negative world is that Heavenly Father's approval is the only approval that matters. I was reminded of this lesson this past spring when I took my boys to a practice facility in, called Snowgression. It's an indoor practice facility for skiers and snowboarders in Salt Lake City. It has trampolines everywhere, a massive foam pit, so skiers and snowboarders can practice their tricks without having to worry about landing things perfectly. The coolest feature of this practice facility is a practice ramp. A person stands up at the top, they hold on to a bar, and when they're ready, they click a button, and it pulls them down the ramp, accelerating them into the jump so they can go flying out into the foam pit. This foam pit is pretty huge, too. It's like 50 by 50 feet. It's an enormous place. You're not going to get hurt. You'll have a hard time getting out of it, though. It's, it's really deep. Dallin, my 13-year-old son, was the most excited to go to this facility. He wants to be a professional free skier someday, and he could probably spend every single day at Snowgression and never get bored. But on this first day, he was a little bit timid, a little bit cautious. He'd probably be the first to tell you that he was worried about looking foolish to other kids that were there. That matters a lot to him on the mountain and in the practice facility. Their approval mattered. As a result, he hadn't tried anything too difficult up to that point. But then on the last chance of the day, we knew it was going to be his last chance, I yelled up to him from the foam pit where I was on filming duty that he should try a backflip. Now, I knew he could do a backflip because I'd seen him do that and many more difficult things on our own trampoline. 
but I wasn't sure he'd have enough courage to do it with so many other people watching him. Well, watch and listen carefully to this video clip to see what happened next. What you see here is Dallin jumping up and down, trying his best to relax and loosen up. Then he grabbed the bar and hit the button. Like I said, it's hard to get out, okay? <laughs> I couldn't believe my eyes. Everyone there was cheering with excitement, and no one louder than me. Dallin could have just floated out of that foam pit, but he did have to climb out of it. But he was on cloud nine for the rest of that day. Why do we care so much about the approval of others? Why do we aspire to the honors of men and forget that Heavenly Father's approval is all that matters in the end? When we allow our decisions to be influenced by the approval of others, we put ourselves at the mercy of fickle mobs, ever-changing fashions, and the devil's whirlwinds. If instead we seek our Heavenly Father's approval only, we build our foundation upon a rock that cannot be moved. And I can think of nothing that will bring us more stability and optimism than building upon the foundation the rock of our Redeemer. When we got home from that trip, we do what we do with all of our videos. We watched them. We watched it in forward. We watched it in backwards. We watched it in fast and slow motion. And we listened to it. And it was then that I realized what a nut I had been after Dallin did that flip. I was kind of embarrassed at first. But later I thought, this has to be how Heavenly Father feels when we stop worrying about what others think of us and try to use the talents that he's given us. I think he is just as excited in celebrating our accomplishments as I was with Dallin's jump. I testify to you that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are our greatest cheerleaders and fan section, and we will feel more joy and hope in this world when we do our best to seek their approval. The last lesson about being positive in a negative world is that we must look for and remember the joy in our lives. When was the last time you felt true joy? How long ago was it? Do you remember the details of that moment? And do you think of it often? As my final story today, I want to tell you about a time this summer when I felt true joy brimming over, impossible to contain. My son Tate is 15 years old, and he practices piano about three to four hours per day on school days and closer to six hours per day during the summer. This past spring, he set a goal to play with the Utah Symphony in their Salute to Youth concert, which is held each fall. It's a statewide competition that draws some of the best young pianists each year. He spent countless hours practicing to refine a 15-minute Chopin concerto, and he eventually submitted his best recording to the judges in late June in hopes that he would be selected to play in the final round of the competition later that summer. The finalists were to be announced on the morning of July 20th, which just happened to be the day that our youth would be pulling handcarts up Rocky Ridge in Wyoming. Well, time went by slowly, it seemed, and we prayed as a family every day that Tate would be able to make it into the final round of that competition. Eventually, the youth trek began and Tate seemed to forget the impending announcement amidst the excitement of pulling a handcart in 95-degree weather in Wyoming, and crossing rivers, square dancing, and singing songs with his handcart brothers at the top of their lungs. 
On that Friday morning, soon after we sent out our handcart company toward Rocky Ridge, I received an unexpected text message from Melinda out in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. Tate had been selected to play in that final round of the competition. I couldn't wipe the smile off of my face, and I couldn't prevent the tears that came with them. That has to be one of the greatest emotions in the world, tears and smiling at the same time. I still remember the sweetness of how that moment felt and how I couldn't wait until noon when I would be able to tell Tate personally. Here's what I recorded in my Pioneer Journal that evening about the events of that day. Because I was taking lunches to the trekkers today, I got to catch up to Tate after he hiked Rocky Ridge. He looked so good coming into the break area, so strong and pure. After he'd eaten lunch, I asked him to come talk with me. I walked with him just a little ways away from everyone so we could be alone, and I asked him if he was ready to hear the decision. He looked very concerned, and he said he wasn't sure he wanted to know because he didn't want to ruin the rest of his trek. I just looked him in the eye, and I said, you won't be disappointed. His look registered complete disbelief at what he'd just heard, so I clarified, Tate, you get to play in the final round of the competition. His face was an expression of pure joy, and he couldn't contain it. He reached out to me and hugged me like he'd never hugged me before. He was in tears with joy. He even picked me up and swung me around. He was so excited. <laughs> he walked off a little ways and just looked over the plains. He had these big sunglasses on. It was just tears coming down. He was so adorable to watch with his friends as they found out. Tate just kept smiling and crying. I experienced true joy for those precious minutes. And that was the end of my journal entry. All of the stories I have shared with you today came from my personal journal. I have learned by my own experience that I feel greater joy and optimism in my life when I am keeping a daily journal. Now, I know that keeping a journal is an overwhelming challenge for most people. As one of my friends told me, he doesn't like keeping a journal because he, he writes too much about each day, and that ends up taking too long and then he eventually stops again. Yes, you know what I mean. So, so I have a recommendation for you to help you with this fifth and final lesson. In October 2007, President Henry B. Eyring told of how he kept a journal for years by asking himself a single question every day. He said, quote, I wrote down a few lines every day for years. I never missed a day no matter how tired I was or how early I would have to start the next day. Before I would write, I would ponder this question. Have I seen the hand of God reaching out to touch us or our children or our family today? As I kept at it, something began to happen. As I would cast my mind over the day, I would see evidence of what God had done for one of us that I had not recognized in the busy moments of the day. As that happened, and it happened often, I realized that trying to remember had allowed God to show me what He had done." End quote. This final lesson is perhaps the most important lesson of them all. To look for joy in our lives, we need only look for the way in which God's hand has touched us or our family or our friends that day. Sometimes He touches us through tender mercies. Other times He touches us with wonderful humor. And frequently, we see His hand in our lives by the way in which He prompts us to serve someone else that day, to lift them those who are struggling. 
We don't have to write lengthy, mundane journal entries about our days. Instead, we can simply write one or two lines in which we identify the hand of God in our lives that day. As we do this, we will see more clearly how blessed our lives really are. We will be filled with gratitude and optimism. We will see the world like our Heavenly Father sees the world. We will see the world as it really is and be filled with joy and hope. I testify to you that this world is a good world and that Heavenly Father sees it that way. He is a God of hope, of joy, of excitement, of enthusiasm, of optimism. With all the negativism in the world, we can sort it out and see the world as Heavenly Father sees it. Let us not confuse righteousness with perfection. Let us get back up every time we fall. Let us keep our focus on Heavenly Father and listen to His voice. Let us seek His approval and not the approval of the world. And let us look for and remember the joy and the touch of God's hand in our lives every day. After all, the gospel is good news. The Savior has overcome the world, and He has prepared the way for us to do the same. May we feel the optimism and joy of His gospel every day of our lives, is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Optimism and Happiness in Life, with thoughts from Jeffrey H. Larson and T. Jeffrey Wilkes. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.